Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil. I'm sure I'm not alone in long being fascinated with the markings used by Indigenous peoples to sign the treaties and legal documents that have shaped their destinies for the last 400 years. Most of them are animals' figures, rustic and plain, and yet somehow imbued with enormous significance. Heidi Bohacker, a professor of history at the University of Toronto and a former member of the Champlain Society Governing Council, has dedicated a part of her career to decoding these symbols and to understanding their importance. She's just finished Dudum and Council Fire Anishinaabe Governance Through Alliance, published by the University of Toronto Press. We reached her at her home office in Toronto. Heidi Bohacker, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Thanks, Patrice. I'm thrilled to be here. And I'd just like to say I'm so happy with these podcasts. I've used these podcasts in my teaching. So it's really exciting for me to be part of this podcast for the Champlain Society. Heidi, you're the witness uh, to yesterday for this episode. Tell me what happened in June of 1671 at Bawati. Yes, what listeners might know as uh, Sault Ste. Marie today, so the, the, <laughs> right where the waters flow between uh, Lake Superior and Lake Huron. And, and this is a place that has been uh, incredibly important to Anishinaabe peoples for, for millennia. It's been a regular site of, of what uh, I call general councils, or, and other scholars have called general councils, major gatherings of people from throughout the region. And it's been supported by the tremendous whitefish fishery there. As the fish travel from Lake Superior to into Lake, Lake Huron waters, they are through the shallow waters of the St. Mary's River, they're easily caught. And this supported the kind of large gatherings of 1,500 or 2,000 people who would get together for a political events, to renew alliances, uh, to discuss issues of common regional importance. And so uh, this particular gathering in June of, of 1671 uh, had some additional guests, and these was uh, these were a small delegation uh, from the colony of New France, and they were acting as emissaries for the French king. And, and their official purpose was to assert France's claim over the entire Great Lakes uh, region for uh, for France. Uh, St. Lucien was in charge of the expedition. Nicholas Perrault was the interpreter. Uh, there were Jesuits who were stationed at, uh, at Bawating as well, who were witness to this event. Uh, and it's a really interesting sort of documentary record uh, of this event. There are, are, are multiple versions that the, the Jesuits recorded what they observed. Perrault left his own interpretations. And uh, Jean Talon, the intendant for New France, also discussed what occurred in his own report to the king later on. So we have some, some multiple sources for this, uh, for this occasion, which was a, a large gathering of somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 people representing uh, 17 different Anishinaabe council fires from, from Lake Superior, Lake Huron, uh, and the Michigan Peninsula. And so they, they come together, and the, the French, uh, uh, St. Lucien speaks to the, the assembled delegates who are on the council flat uh, above the St. Mary River. And if you can just imagine these uh, large number of people sitting uh, around uh, around a fire, that literally 1,500, 2,000 people, and Luzon performs a, a petit de possession ceremony, which was which had a lot of meaning in early modern France. It was the way in which uh, you uh, the imperial 
authorities asserted claim to a territory. He reached down, he grabbed a soil, he held it aloft, and he claimed the region and all the waters of the Great Lakes region, and of course he's doing this in French, uh, uh, for France. Uh, and uh, then he produces a document, which is a record of the event, and he asks the Gima, or the leaders of the different council fires, to, to sign this. And they responded with, as uh, Perot notes in his reflection, the insignia of their families. Some of them drew a beaver, an otter, a sturgeon, a deer, or an elk. Now, that actually original manuscript original of that with the actual signatures is is lost, as so often happens in this period when when documents became uh, damaged. You know, they would become they would become copied uh, as a true copy, and and then the uh, originals discarded. So there was just the notation that these signatures occurred. Um, what's particularly interesting about this event is when uh, uh, Talon reports to the king, he notes that the uh, alliance, or sorry, that the ceremony itself, that these these copper mines of Lake Superior region and all the waters of New France and the lands of, of uh, sorry, all the waters of the Great Lakes region and all the, the lands were now uh, the property of uh, of the French king, that these, land, these lands had been attained for France. And Talon notes, you know, that, 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 but effectively, Your Majesty, you've got these for nothing because the people gave us in return for the gifts we brought to purchase the lands, we have received an equal value of furs. So we really have two different legal systems here. Uh, and we have from an, an, an Anishinaabe perspective, uh, an alliance relationship being formed. And we have from a, a French perspective, a, a land purchase or a land claim. Uh, and and then we have these these images on this document, and we don't have any other images on any other document like this until the Great Peace of Montreal in 1701. But then then we move forward, and on all the subsequent uh, land purchases made by the British after the war, uh, after the Seven Years' War, Anishinaabe peoples sign with these images. So this is clearly a, a, a really important practice, and that's what I set out to investigate. And it's fascinating. I wonder if, before we get into the politics of all this, which really captivates me, uh, I wonder if you could spend a, a few minutes talking about the, my favorite Dudemag. This is what you call them, Dudemag? Dodem or Dodemag. You put the emphasis on the second syllable. Dodem, Dodem. Yeah. Am I getting closer? Dodemag. You have, in the middle of your book, on plate 34, and we're going to reproduce it on our on the Champlain Society website so people can see it. Uh, a petition of Chippewa chiefs dated 1849, which was headed by Oshkawabis of Wisconsin, if I understand correctly. What does this Dodemag show and what does it mean? Right. So in, in addition to signing land sale documents, uh, Anishinaabe peoples whose homeland stretched throughout the Great Lakes region and well into, into Wisconsin and into um, west of Lake Superior and, and, and into uh, Lake Winnipeg area, they, um, they also used these images when they signed documents that they produced in council. So it's a record of formal governance. And so they also sign these on petition documents they send to the British Crown. And in the United States, after, of course, the formation of the states, um, Anishinaabe peoples in what is now the United States also use these images on petitions. This one's just particularly striking. Of course, it's in full color. It's it's the character the uh, dotem are drawn walking. 
Uh, and they're shown with lines emanating from their hearts and from their heads to show that their minds and hearts are connected to this particular set of rice lakes in Wisconsin, which the, which the chiefs were claiming. So it's reflecting a way in which the Anishinaabe describe their relatedness to particular lands and waters through these, uh, these beings, these dotum beings. So these dotums really have an important significance. They are a signature, as you say, but they seem to be invested with a great deal more than that. Right. I, and, I'm in the, and they also are an incredibly important source, uh, incredibly potent source, as I say in the book, of metaphor around governance. And, you know, we have them, too, in the West, right? We always talk about the crown. We don't stop and think about that a crown is just a hat. We use a crown all the time to talk about. Right. Right. It's, <laughs> right? It, it's, it's, it's government. Yes. <laughs> it's government. You know, yes. we know what it means. And so this is the same analogy here is that these dotum beings are, in fact, representing or, or metaphors for, they signify uh, the way in which Anishinaabe peoples govern themselves. So you say at one point, and I'm going to quote you, uh, you very much want to guard against ahistorical or rigidly prescriptive readings of Dodomag, or what the Dodom tradition meant, or how people thought about the tradition, either through a social or a legal basis. What do you mean by this? Right. So um, I guess first, I just want to clarify a little bit more for your listeners about what the tradition is in that it, 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 it constructs a system of relatedness. So people who share the same dotum identity understood themselves as being immediate kin, having the same kind of obligations you would have to a brother uh, or a sister, even if you'd never met the person before. If they're of your dotum, they are they are that kind of kin, close kin. They, they also are kin you can't marry, obviously, being like a sibling relationship. Uh, and so every marriage, every Anishinaabe marriage was, was intended to be a marriage of people of two different uh, dotamek, which meant that every family then had a uh, um, multi, you know, two at least two uh, layers of support, right, through 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 kin connections. So it creates these kind of kin connections over a very large geographic area. It was it was actually the the source of Anishinaabe political stability and cohesiveness. It, it helps to explain how a, a really decentralized system of government could operate over a very large area. Um, and they're broad principles. Like, for example, typically people obtain their, their dotum identity through their, their father's line. Um, and as I said, the spouses kept their, their dotums when they married. Um, Basil Johnson, who's a leading, uh, was, was passed away, but he's a, was a leading Anishinaabe intellectual, commented in his Ojibwe history that, you know, the dotum was probably the most important social unit taking precedent over, you know, any kind of tribal community or, or just even uh, family. Uh, relationships. It was so, so central. So in response to your question about, you know, wanting to guard against ahistorical or rigidly prescriptive readings, um, so, and I indicated two things there, the social analysis, from a social perspective or social analysis and from a legal analysis. Um, socially, what I mean from that, about that, is that, you know, well, it's clear this tradition has been central to Anishinaabe life for a very long time, long before Europeans arrived here. There's been change in the system and the tradition too. So it's it's important to keep in mind that the system did change over time. And I document some of those changes that I observed uh, in, in the rules. or in the, I document uh, those changes as I see them over time uh, in the in the archival record. 
Uh, and there were creative ways in which communities flexed the dotem tradition to accommodate certain kinds of problems. For example, if someone married a non-Ishnabe father, someone who didn't have a you know non-Ishnabe person, and that person didn't have a dotem, uh, how were the children going to have that dotem and participate in uh, fully in Anishinaabe life? How were they going to, you know, be part of of governance? So there were rules around and different and creative rules in different areas about uh, whether someone would be adopted into a particular clan or particular dotem, like the the Martin clan. You see that happen in the Western Great Lakes region. Um, Peter Jones, for example, who was a Mississauga Anishinaabe Methodist missionary, very well known. His father was a, this, one of the surveyors, right? It was Augustus Jones. So his grandfather, his maternal grandfather actually adopted him to replace his own, like not to replace, but to gave him his own son's name, his own son who had passed away. So his uncle's name. And in so doing, and through that naming ceremony, gave him the eagle dotum. So sort of, you know, so he technically has the same dotum as his, yes, he has the same dotum as his mother, but more, more precisely, he has the same dotum as his grandfather. It's endlessly fascinating. So it goes from the personal to the social. And, and through your book, you argue that, in fact, it's more than that. It actually gives us, uh, the dotum system tells us something about the governance of the Anishinaabe people. You make a case that a constitution can be discerned by the markings. Can you explain that? Absolutely. So, you know, we think about constitutions as sort of a, a, a document that sets up the foundations or the rules for any particular polity. And uh, it's not that the dotum itself um, on its own constitutes anything, but that Anishinaabe uh, councils, when they wanted to establish a new council fire in a new location, uh, or refer to a historic uh, historic location would use dotum as the metaphor for the, the what was we called the keeper of the council fire. That is, which dotum would be responsible for those uh, lands that that particular council was going to have jurisdiction over. And so, when you look at the land, uh, you know, the land surrender or the land purchase agreements that were made between um, Anishinaabe peoples after. Um, the proclamation of 1763, when you look at those those treaty documents, uh, they're signed with dotum images and they're signed in, in effect with the, the, the membership of the local council. So you can actually see that in the first position of the, the sort of top of the uh, list of signatures will be the dotum of the gima or the chief of that particular council, who is described as sort of metaphorically as sort of the keeper of that council fire, so that is responsible for that, those lands and that that territory, that establishes authority. And it is yeah, not authority though. I think that's a really really important distinction. That's a Western idea. <laughs> it's a Western idea, and uh, it really comes through that what Anishinaabe people were doing was establishing responsibility for, which meant that those those are the people who had particular duties to that land. All right. It is a contract in a way. Mm-hmm, absolutely. It's a really great way to think about it, uh, that y- you then uh, have a set of obligations that you have to fulfill in this case to the land and the other ensouled beings uh, that live on that land. So that's another legal concept that comes through in this in this research, uh, that Anishinaabe peoples extend the legal category of personhood and the idea of ensouled beings to many other than human beings. So these, these, the bear, uh, the crane, 
the eagle. These are also persons in Anishinaabe law. And that means when you start thinking about uh, birch trees or um, eagles or cranes as ensouled beings who are persons in law, is that you also then inherit a set of ethical responsibilities towards those beings that it's just it doesn't translate into western law that puts that defines uh, personhood much more narrowly and um you know sets up land and and the animals that live in a particular habitat for example as the property of the landowner for example so what you're showing us is that this is really a complicated thing Quite, actually, and I feel I'm stuck <laughs> for 20 years. I feel I, I still am learning so much. You're telling us how the, the Dodomag, um, I'm sure I'm saying it wrong still, uh, really um, establish uh, social relations. They give identification. They seem to be a way of tracking inter-community inter marriages that were essential. Uh, is there anything else that is revealed by the Dodomag? Well, the, the images themselves, you know, on the treaties, after a while when you stare at them, and I stared at them a lot, um, uh, you, you realize that there's actually quite a narrow set of the ways in which they're represented. So we can take the Mikisi or eagle dotum, for example. The people either represented it in one of two ways. They either drew the eagle in the act of catching the fish with its claws extended, or they drew it perched as you know, in, in that sort of on the tree watching or on the post watching kind of posture. And and uh, the caribou uh, dotum or adic dotum, uh, um, the vast majority have their, their tails up. Uh, and so you think, okay, well, what's going on here? Like, uh, there's a whole range of ways you could draw these items. Why do you know these images? Why do people pick these particular ways? And the more I reflected on it and learned about Anishinaabe, uh, leadership values and sort of what, you know, what, what makes a good leader. Uh, a couple of themes really emerge. And one is, you know, that a really good uh, gima or gima is someone who uh, is always providing for the, the people. That's a really important role of, of gima. Uh, and another one is that you really have to be vigilant on behalf of the people, that you have this, this extra duty of care when you're in these leadership roles. So uh, then you start to think, okay, this makes sense, right? You've got uh, the eagles uh, actually grabbing the food out of the water. They're, they're, they're at that last moment where they're grabbing that salmon out of the river, uh, or they are, um, you know, keeping a high in a tree, watching uh, and, and and looking to spot potential problems and to sort of be to be proactive. So there's, there are other ways, you know, that these images give us uh, some really interesting insights. They they again they, they they represent different facets of responsibility. Absolutely. Did the use of the dudamag change with time? How did it change with time? First of all, in the ways in which they are drawn on paper, they change over time. In the earliest examples, and like before the Seven Years' War and before uh, really the American Revolution when settlers started to come into southern Ontario and there was pressure on, on land, uh, there are not a lot of documents with dotum images on them. There's much more rock art um, paintings with dotum because they're very common on the on, in that context. So, so Looking at them, um, you know, in terms of their political function on these sorts of international alliance agreements, um, you see often that it would just be the one dotum representing the gima of the particular council fire. So, and then sometimes you would see ones in the later half of the 18th century where one 
person would sign for, and then they would be a notation by the offered by the clerk that you know this one person is signing for all the other people who had the same uh, dotum in their community. And then, and then you know, into the 1830s and 1840s, especially as people like the Mississaugas of the Credit moved and adopted some aspects of a sort of settler governance, keeping minutes of their meetings and this sort of thing, you start to see petitions that have sort of every male member of the community uh, signing the petition or the document with their dotum image. So that that kind of that changes, and then as a social institution, it also changed over time, and certainly. Uh, after a century and a half of living under the Indian Act, uh, you know, the dotum image really, uh, the dotum institution changes uh, and in some cases became, um, uh, like especially with the introduction of reserves and restrictions on movement that we see after the uh, some of the 1884 amendments to the Indian Act, um, you know, the, the, the purpose for the tradition uh, regulating marriage between communities that are supposed to be traveling and getting together, that starts to break down um, because because people it's very diff- much more difficult for people to travel. Now, was the use of Dudamag, uh typical of Anishinaabe, or was it represent? Did that did the use of these images um, spread to other areas in North America? One of the striking things about sort of graphic practices of indigenous peoples in North America and well, even in South America too, is in the Americas, is just how unbelievably diverse they are. So um, back uh, uh, more than a decade ago now in 2008, I was part of a conference that uh, was actually looking at some of these these diversities of graphic practices. Frank Solomon, the anthropologist, uh, had organized uh, a session at Ethnohistory on this, I, the Ethnohistory Conference on this idea of graphic pluralism. So it's actually a striking feature of North American Indigenous societies that you can, the Haudenosaunee have different practices. Um, the, the, uh, the, uh, on the Wabanaki Confederacy in what's now the, the maritime regions, they did also sign uh, dotum, dotum like is not the same, <laughs> but they did use these sorts of images on, um, on their treaty documents. There are other examples uh, throughout the Americas. So, um, but they reflect the different understandings of um, kinship and the different political structures in those in those communities. And as I said, one of the most striking things about uh, indigenous the indigenous Americas is just how unbelievably diverse they were in uh, these in different forms of writing. Well, there's lots of creativity, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> To what degree, then, are they relevant today? Is this something that sort of uh, belongs to history? Does the Dudamag still um, still relevant today? Does the Dudam system still exist today? Yeah, it certainly does. Uh, there's there's certainly uh, many places where the knowledge is really alive and well, and people know their Dudam. And when you go to uh, gatherings today, you'll hear people introduce themselves and identify their, their Dudam. Um, there are also people who, because of residential schools, the 60s scoop, for any number of reasons, have lost contact with that identity or because it went underground. Um, and so for some people, genealogical work is actually how they, they recover that. Um, but it's definitely, it's talked, I mean, in the 20 years I've been doing this, you certainly see people talking a lot more now about it as it becomes uh, more uh, socially acceptable and comfortable for people to be 
traditionally Anishinaabe. I mean, don't forget the Indian Act prohibited any expression of some ceremonial practice at all until 1951. So there's, you know, an entire older generation who uh, still alive today who were greatly affected by that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've introduced so many new words to my, to my vocabulary with this book. Um, I have to ask you the, the classic Champlain Society question. What were your sources for this study? And where did you find these dudamags in order to create your inventory? You know, it, the story of how I got on, onto this work in the first place actually goes back to my my supervisor, Sylvia Van Kirk, and my, during my doctoral thesis. Uh, and I was actually proposing to do an entirely different project. Uh, but it was about the Mississauga history. And Sylvia really encouraged me to look at the manuscript original treaty documents, not to rely on either printed copies or even the microfilm. So I got to do that. Uh, and I'm really grateful uh, for her insistence uh, because uh, on on the, the treaty parchments themselves, they just leap out at you. And you have to say to yourself, well, this must be really important. And the other thing that I noticed when I started looking at the treaty documents was just how, um, you know, you would realize that there would be the same set. There would be a caribou and pike uh, dotum images on the Credit River treaties as were also on um, treaties signed with, you know, the Chippewas of Rama or with the Chippewas of the Thames. So it it began to make me think about why were people doing this and why was it so important? Um, so it started with the treaty documents and then it expanded into um, uh, petitions and other documents. Thanks of course to P Patricia Kennedy at the national or, you know, library archives, Canada, who said, uh, well, I think there are some more. Let me show you some more. <laughs> and of course. <laughs> Don't you love archivists that are like that? I know. She's like, we, we have more of these. <laughs> and then you just, I'm like, Oh my goodness. They are on so many petitions. And, and then you, start to realize these are all on documents that are produced in council. And they say that, you know, the meeting of uh, chief and council and the petition lists uh, uh, what the, you know, the request is of the crown. And then they're signed with these images. And so then it was, okay, well, this is about government. Um, and that then, you know, you then start casting a, a much wider net into, you know, printed archival and other sources and working with the Indian agent papers and anyone who had contact with people to see uh, if they knew more about what these images were. And then working also with both historic Anishinaabe writers like Peter Jones, who actually talks about the system in his history, uh, William Warren and others uh, and contemporary communities. So there's a tremendous amount of continuity there, actually. And it's a real challenge, and your book really, really carries it off. It's the, the the challenge of trying to of, of of interpreting these these images and and from them, uh, retracing the 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 rules and regulations and responsibilities of the Anishinaabe people as widely spread as they were. I mean, it it brings coherence to a vast territory, doesn't it? I, I'm grateful to see that it does now. It, it, it was, as you can see, I started, I started this work in the early 2000s. So yes. uh, it's taken a long time. Uh, and I think that's just, again, it goes to the complexity of the, of the initial problem, right? Well, it's, it's really illuminating. But before I let you go, I have to ask you another question. Because your book actually features footnotes, not, not endnotes at the back of the chapter or at the end of the book but actual footnotes on the page. 
Did you insist on this, or was it the University of Toronto Press who decided to adopt this old format of print? I'm asking Heidi because I love it, <laughs> and I'm wondering why we ever lost that beautiful practice of putting the footnotes where they belong at the foot of the text. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I've always loved it myself. And I, I just asked, to be honest. I just really? said, I, yeah, I just asked. I was intending to be really, I had a whole argument lined up to really insist. Um, I, but, you know, when I asked, I just pointed out that, look, there's a so, so many, I have so many explanatory footnotes. This isn't just a case where, you know, I'm referencing a scholar with a page number. Uh, I have a lot of footnotes that explain the context and which will be critical for some readers and other readers will will need it less because of you know how they're coming to the book so it just it seemed to me to be the best case for footnotes because you don't want to have your reader constantly flipping back and forth it's really annoying <laughs> i find it really annoying and i really appreciate <laughs> it and i hope that i hope that we all follow your example and simply ask for it because and especially i mean a book like this that is given to trying to interpret and 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 uh, and demonstrate you provided a very graphic book and I, I i just i thought it's so refreshing and i hope that i hope that the old the old-fashioned footnote catches fire again and we can go return to it <laughs> i'm right with you there Patrice. I'll, I'll support <laughs> that 100 percent. thank you heidi uh, thank you for this book and um i wish you well thank you thank you for this opportunity i really appreciated speaking with you today That was Heidi Bohecker, author of Dudum and Council Fire, Anishinaabe Governance Through Alliance, published by the University of Toronto Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the society does. There's a place to become a member and a sustainer of the society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. Please let people know how much you like these dialogues by using whatever social media you use. We'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who are making an investment in the hard work of bringing to life original documents in Canadian history. Thank you. Thank you also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the middle of the pandemic on April 16th, 2021 by Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.